Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. James chapter 2 will be verse 14 through 26. We're going to start in verse 12, though. Uh, This kind of gives us a little bit of context, remembering what we touched on last week and the week before, as James calls us to action after showing us what it means to live under the law of liberty. We'll start with this call to action because our text today is highlighting the legitimacy and the necessity of the call of the Christian to action. So let's begin in verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the needs, the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Okay, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's take a minute and pray. God, we exalt the name of Jesus Christ through the foolishness of preaching. We proclaim as those throughout the centuries have that Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and at the right hand of God, is our God. We hold nothing else dear to us but him and him crucified. I pray that our message this morning would not back down from the truth. Would you give us hearts to receive you with gladness and meekness, those who are spiritually bankrupt and need you to supply our righteousness. We thank you so much for your word that teaches us because without it, we would certainly put ourselves on the throne if left to ourselves, would never seek you. We thank you for your word that draws our hearts. We thank you for your spirit who is actively working. We thank you for stepping outside of yourself to reveal yourself perfectly to the world through Jesus. And we ask this morning that you would take rightful place on your throne and that we would believe and act. We love you and ask for your grace this morning that we would be changed and that we would be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to start off this morning. 
I'm not sure if anyone, everyone can see it. You may have some stuff in the way. But we have two verses here to start our day off. If any of you know anything about Christianity, and if any of you know anything about James, you probably also know about Paul. Or if you know about Paul, you probably know about James. Or if you know about Luther, you know definitely about Paul and James. This is why, right here. So I'm going to just show you a piece from Romans 3.28. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's Paul. Now James, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You can see that we have a problem. You can see one is justified by faith. A person is justified by works. Who's right? What's going on here? What are we supposed to do with this? What's our approach to making sure that we understand and we don't feel absolutely crazy holding these two truths in the same hand? I mean, this is some very specific teaching, and there seems to be a contradiction here between our two authors. What are we supposed to do about it? What is our approach? Do we start then by saying something along the lines of, well, there's obviously some, you know, some errors in the Bible, and we don't, it's not really, you know, we can kind of toss these ones out since they don't, you know, go together, so we don't have to worry about that. Probably don't want to do that. Um, maybe instead what we should do is we could see which one Jesus picks from his teaching and we should go with that one. Always good to do what Jesus does. Or perhaps maybe we should see how many more statements throughout the Bible say one way or the other way. And then we kind of like collect them all and may the best theology win. Or perhaps maybe, you know, we should point out that James, you know, he seems to be all about the practical stuff. He's a pastor. He's very practical, and, and, and so he doesn't really intend to be about theology. So he doesn't necessarily need to be taken seriously against Paul. Or do we simply illustrate from church history that Paul is actually writing at a later date, and he is a more reliable source of doctrine for the church? Again, James is an early writer, very first thing. If you remember back in Acts 15, we see him at the right in the middle, right in the mix, one of the main elders at Jerusalem at the beginning of the church. And Paul, who's had this time to kind of think over things and build this Pauline theology, James didn't have that. So maybe we ought to take time to understand Pauline theology. And James was good for the first church and he was faithful. Um, you know, but Paul is much clearer on understanding the inner workings of salvation. And so what, what James kind of is is more of a historical backdrop for us to understand the transition between Jewish law and life from the Old Testament and Jesus. What in the world is supposed to be our approach? I will contend that none of the approaches that I just mentioned are helpful for what we're doing, although they do seem attractive. They seem like they might be able to help us smooth some of these things over and make them work together or just kind of cover one up so we don't have to worry about it. If we come to this passage for the first time and we write these two phrases out here, and we start getting clever with how we can possibly make them work together, we've jumped outside of James to figure something out. We've jumped right over the intended purpose of our passage and we've gone straight to the secondary, however important, we've gone to the, the secondary question about this text. I think there's a point of application. Is there ever a time where you found yourself, whether it is in your own community group or maybe a life group or a, an accountability or a Bible study, where we jump and when we get together, we get to a, a controversial spot 
when we start talking about, oh, well, this guy says this about this section, or, oh, here's the three theories about what this could possibly mean, or, oh, you know, the grammar's not exactly right about that, but I've heard I'm not really sure what to do with that. Instead of reading the word, hearing it, receiving it, and doing it. Is there a possibility there could be multiple answers? Yeah, we really need to figure this all out. Are we sometimes more concerned about the academic exercise than figuring out how to hear and do the word? This may not be a struggle for some of you. You're like, yeah, I don't want to touch this with a nine-foot pole. No way. I, I don't want to deal with this. But I do know that there are some of us in our body that do struggle with this, that would rather have a conversation, an interesting debate over the text and around the text rather than obey the text. If that's true, let's think the right way and remember what this whole thing is about. It is about Jesus. It seems to be an honorable pursuit, but you know, this, this idea of making sure we read big Christian theology books or discussing different Greek words or understanding historical viewpoints, these are honorable pursuits. But it's possible that they are keeping us from receiving the implanted word, hearing it, and doing it. You think that if maybe you read Grudem, then you're more spiritual than the next guy. And yet you neglect the regular reading on obeying of the Bible. Today's message is for you. This is not the way we should start this message. This is not a good idea for us to start here freaking everyone out. What are we supposed to do? Does Paul and this guy, do they, do they, do they match? Or how are we supposed to do it? What this type of board is really for is something more like this. This is what we should do with it. Like, use it for flannel graph. Isn't that what that's for, right? Yeah, I knew you knew that. And that's a creepy thing because his head's getting cut off, sorry. This is not where we should start with the arguments, with the, oh no, what do you think this says? What do you think this says? Well, we know Catholic theology says this about this and this about this. Hold on a second. The question about comparing Paul to James is not unimportant. I'm not saying that. It certainly is. However, this is not the way that we should be approaching these verses. That should not be our first thought. Oh, James and Paul, we've got to figure this out again. I'm just going to kind of get some angst about this, work through this passage, and get to the next stuff that is real practical and easy to work through. We ought to come like we try to do each week and understand James against the backdrop of all the things that James has already been saying to us. From chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to now we're in 2.14. We need to understand the way that he speaks the issues that he's dealing with his people. We must understand James for James as an author and pastor and what he is trying to do as he preaches to his congregations. We must understand him then in context. I don't know how many times I've said that, probably every sermon. Hopefully you're getting it though. We don't want to take and rip pieces of James or any part of the Bible out of their context because you can make it say what you want to then. We can make these two just have a, have a big fight right here on the whiteboard when James is dealing with something completely different. So this is not our approach today. Not at all. James is going to give us one big argument here. It's one unit. It's one thought process with several moving pieces to it, but his message is clear. Today we're going to go from verse 14 down to verse 20. Next week we're going to come back and do 21 through 26. So since I've made such a big deal about the context... Let's consider the context. Last week, we just finished up James's teaching about fulfilling the royal law, the law of Christ, the law of love, this second half of the two greatest commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. 
He's shown us how damning it is to continue to show partiality or favoritism to anyone based on skin color, based on economic status, based on anything. It's all wrong and sinful. He's made it clear that a person who shows partiality acts against the character of God. They've been blinded themselves, excuse me, they've blinded themselves to the things around them and they have willingly, rebelliously broken God's law. They are a transgressor, and for this they will be judged. All the while, James is presenting our Lord Jesus Christ of glory as the God of all mercy. He's reckoning back to understanding that God does not take a bribe, that God shows no partiality, and that his character is such that he also loves the world around him. He calls us then to live this way, a way that's consistent with who he is, to love our neighbor as ourself. This is the message then that's ringing in our ears as we come to verse 14. So verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? This is our governing statement for the rest of the chapter. We've got to get this. We've got to understand what he's saying. If we can understand what he's saying here, it will help us understand the rest that's beneath it because we're going to get to some really sticky stuff here. This helps us understand the rest of the passage, defines words for us, helps us understand the purpose of what he's trying to do, and actually gives us direction. He uses this question to tease out the obvious rhetorical response, right? If you say this, you say, okay, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? You feel like an idiot unless you say, oh, nothing, like he has nothing to gain. Or can that faith save him? No, no, James, it can't. That's on purpose. Because what he is saying is this, there is no gain, there's nothing good, specifically, there's no salvation for those that say they have faith but don't have any works. Let me say it again. There is no gain or there is no good or specifically there is no salvation for those that say they have faith but do not have works. These conclusions are heavy, right? We just talked about this from the last passage. No salvation. We're talking about judgment. We're talking about the wrath of God poured out on you. That's how serious this section is. There is no gain, no salvation for those that say they have faith but have no works. There are two things that I think that we ought to notice about this person. Number one, they don't have faith, they say they have faith. Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? This person is claiming faith. They say they believe. When it comes to theology, he claims that Jesus is God and that God is one, that Jesus was born of a virgin. He believes all the right stuff about who God is. He says that he has faith. Number two, though, James makes the note, this person does not have works. The strange thing is that the individual in question doesn't even dispute it. It's not like a subjective decision. Like He's saying, well, I say that he doesn't have any works. Later on in the text, we'll realize that this guy isn't defending the fact that what he does is works versus what's not works. He's simply saying that he doesn't need works. So, number one, this is a person that says that they have faith. Number two, they do not have any works. This is our governing idea. It will help us understand. But what in the world are we supposed to do with that? That statement, are we to turn then to 
pursue good works, like, shoot, I need to do good works then because I don't want to, you know, lose my salvation or like I'm not, I don't have salvation if I don't have good works and I say I have faith. Is it then something that we ought to start adding works to our faith so that we can properly come up on the right side and we can both say we have faith and we'll show that we have works? There, there isn't a positive command in this verse at all. It's rather a clarification piece. Does anyone see that? It's not a do this. It's rather a fact. He's pointing out something that is true, that there is no salvation for those who say they have faith but don't have works. Then what am I supposed to do, James? He's not going to do this and just drop us. He's going to lead us through carefully. And if you consider for a moment, he's already been telling us to do all kinds of stuff. Receive the implanted word. Remember that? Be a hearer of the word and a doer of the word, not a hearer only. He talks about holding your tongue. He talks about loving those who are helpless, the widow and the orphan. He talks about keeping ourselves unstained from the world. Guys, if we're missing all that, we're like, what are we supposed to do when we come to this phrase? Then we haven't listened to all of what James has already said. Rather, I think that we get to this point and we're starting to realize what's happening. He's saying, if you're not doing all the things that we've just talked about, you should be concerned. Because faith and works go together, which he will move on to prove. There isn't a positive command, but again, he's not going to leave us here. He's going to start by giving us an example of this so-called faith without works. Someone who like, proclaims this blessing of peace and be warmed and filled. That's in verse 15 through 17. Then in verse 18, he's going to bring up this person, this kind of a, like imaginary friend that's a, an objector, someone who represents the other side. And they're going to bring up this idea, well, you know, as long as you have faith or works, you know, they're all gifts of God, it's a good thing. Don't worry about it, as long as you have one of them. Then James is going to respond to that. He's going to spend the rest of the passage responding with his own biblical per rationale and then he's going to use three biblical examples. Faith of demons, faith of Abraham, faith of Rahab. Finally, he will end with an analogy to show the nature of faith and works and how they always, always belong together. So, this is the pathway that we will follow today. We'll start working through this introductory material, work through the, the two negative examples that we have, the faithless person proclaiming, uh, warming, and, and feeding. Then we'll talk about the demons who believe correctly, quote-unquote. We'll stop after this to consider our own situation draw application for today. And then next week, we'll dive back into these two positive examples of people who did have a faith that worked itself out, Abraham and Rahab. So, that being said... Let's look back at verse 14 again. He's just begun by telling us that there's no gain, specifically that there's no salvation for those that say they have faith but have no works. He now moves into an ex explaining this argument by using, like I said, two negative examples. People whose lack of biblical faith exposes them for who they truly are. First, let's talk about this meaningless blessing given out to the poor. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. J 
James cleverly uses yet another situation in which Christians are showing partiality, making a secondary point, possibly a bigger point, against the poor to illustrate faith without works. So he uses this idea of partiality and where he's not actually acting, the Christian doesn't go outside himself to give and show love to make an understandable point that faith without any sort of works is useless. And the fact he says is dead. There's this faith without action. I think it's helpful for us to see that James defines what he means by works when he gives us this example. He is showing us and saying that no one took action in this situation. They knew what was going on. They've acknowledged it with words, but they didn't do anything about it. There was no actions. I realize if you come from a Catholic background, you don't like the word works. And if you're a Protestant also, you don't like the word works anyway because we're against the Catholics. So just know this. When we say works, we mean actions. You can have works of righteousness and you can have works of unrighteousness. All it's saying is actions. What kind of actions come out of this thing? So I want to clarify that. A person that now has obviously lacked some of the normal things, we have proper clothing for the elements, food for their daily needs. This person comes into contact with a Christian, right? One of James' congregants, most likely. And the Christian recognizes the need, and he gives them a blessing. He says, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. It's almost like saying, like the head nod and saying, I'll pray for you, brother. Go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet, there is no action. Nothing happens. He walks away. He turns the other way. He probably forgets to pray for him anyway. The Christian has properly identified the truth. He knows what's going on. They have even declared the truth out loud. And yet, he shows no action at all. And James's point then is he makes this rhetorical question again and says, what good is it? What has it done for him? Nothing. Nothing's changed about his situation. What gain is it to him? Is your blessing him with your words doing something for him? No. And so James says that faith by itself, in the way that you define it, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, already our temptation here if you've been around the church at all, our temptation is to pour into that statement, faith by itself. We're like, yeah, but Paul, don't do that. I can't say that. I would, I would just say, hold on a minute and remember that James is James and he makes his own definitions. Because if you remember back in four, verse 14, we're going to understand much better what he means by faith by itself. In verse 14, this is the so-called faith that which a person has claimed. It's that we have, that this person has claimed to have, as we said before, but it doesn't have any works at all. There is no action. It is then faith by itself. This type of faith is dead. It's a strong word. Not like once it was alive and then it died. No, it's, it's, it was never alive. It was never there. And he's going to explain this further. The reason I can say that is because in verse 26, he's going to show you there's no life when there's no body and spirit together. Faith and works without each other, they cannot work. It's not real. So there's no life. It wasn't as though it was there and then it passed away and it died. And you didn't keep yourself good enough. That's not what's going on here. So-called faith that has no works is dead. And so James begins to link these two things very tightly together faith, and action. We're starting to see a pattern here, and you're going to see it get stronger and stronger. 
Now, along comes this imaginary but very real objector to this truth. He's the one that's disagreeing with James's thesis about this. He says, wait a minute, James. Yo, just hold on a second. God has given each of us different gifts. It's okay. Some faith, some works. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. I mean, who's to say, James? You don't really know. We've all been given different gifts. Strangely enough, I can take a little pause. This little phrasing here is actually one of the most difficult to understand in the entire New Testament. That's not my words. That's actually by all the commentaries that I read. The reason that is is because there's not punctuation around this in the original Greek manuscripts. So we're not sure when the phrase ends. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that we're, we're in trouble because, first of all, it's not... Uh, unclear what's going on. We do understand what his point is, and so we can take the words as they are. Also, I believe that the ESV translators, the Bible that you have there in front of you, have, have very much helped us. They've put quotations around what I believe is that actual statement he makes. If you look at it, you're going to see that it says, quotation mark, you have faith and I have works, end quotation mark. I think that's right. The objector is trying to say nonchalantly in a generalized situation as an objector, He's trying to just say whether a person has faith or works, it's all good. It's totally fine. It's another good gift from God. You have faiths, I have works, no problem. They're separate entities and they're both good. James responds, no, they aren't separate entities. That's not true for a Christian at all. You're misunderstanding. Cornerstone, if I can get you to remember one thing today, I think this is it. James is unifying faith and action. He is helping us understand that they are never separated. It is not as though you have the bubble over here of faith and the bubble over here of action. And if you put the two together, you get salvation. That is not what's happening. He is showing their unity. He is showing how closely connected these two are. And I mean, James even shows this as he moves on. Verse 18, look at the second half. James is going to respond. So you had this first this thing. You have faith and I have works, period. Enter James. James says then, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He basically brings him up and says, okay, go ahead. Show me your faith without any action. I'll wait. Okay, nothing? Nothing at all? Yeah, so let's get down to the truth here. What I'll do then, I will show you my works, what I do, and you will see undeniably that it points back to the fact that I have faith. Something I'm already professing as well. But let's start with this. This truth that I will have works connected to my faith. Because these actions are only ones, if you look at my works, these are only ones that come from someone who is dominated by King Jesus. They are dominated by the one who says, love your neighbor. The one that lives by the royal law, the law of love. The actions of love for my neighbor are consistent with my king's actions and his love for the world. And thus, it points out my faith. It shows what's actually going on here. Now, at this point, I can hear the doubters and strugglers amongst us. I'm one of them. We kind of are like, yeah, but Christian, you be real careful on the pendulum swing here. Like you're going toward the work side here. You got to be careful. It's almost like Christian's telling me that you know, only way that people will know whether we are Christians or not is by the way that we love other people. 
way we show that. And like, of course, we claim to know God, the profession, and then the way that we outwardly do good things. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because that's what James is saying. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ of glory is always acting a certain way. The object of our faith, the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, has changed us and is changing us and continuing to work. Uh, In some way, true faith in Christ, not saying just the words or just claiming faith, but true faith in Christ will always act differently. It has been changed. It's radically gone from dead to alive. Strange that he would use the word dead to describe this faith that doesn't have any works then. It's not an accident. Um, So the object of our faith has changed us. Do we then, I will ask, do we then, does that mean that we do it perfectly? No. We know that in part, that's why James is writing. Remember verse 4 of chapter 1, right from the beginning? He is writing for our maturity, our completion, our Christian character. In verse 4 he says, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He knows that this is a journey as we walk, and as we become more like Jesus, he continues to work in us. Will we do it perfectly? No. But now something has changed about us. Now we have a heart that is new, that is changed, that is willing to repent of sin and submit to God as our king. Does that mean that we don't tend to climb back on that throne? No, we know that we are still sinful and he's continued to rip that down. But he's given us a new heart that desires to obey him and follow after him and to do what he does. This love empowers us to love the rest of the world as Christ did. This is a result of a heart that has received the implanted word with meekness. This is what it looks like to hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ of glory. These are things that he's already told us. But I promise you, I I get it. I understand the doubt. You may find it very hard uh, that proving your faith comes through actions which anyone can seemingly manipulate or fake, right? I get that, but, but don't miss the fact that what James is saying in the first part, someone who has no actions cannot prove any faith. And his commentary is that this so-called faith without any actions is dead. We, do not, we should not desire to be uh, the people that our faith is called dead. That should be like real simple. Yeah, but Chris, what about this? Hold on. Do you want your faith to be called dead faith? Because that's James, an apostle of Jesus, telling us that. Or an elder here. Is that what you want your faith to be called? Dead faith. Verse 19 is going to help us in a minute here. We'll get to it. But um, I'd ask the question, do you really want to hold on to this belief that you don't have to act according to the law of Christ? That your salvation is secure as long as you agree with good theology. That's all that matters. As long as I hold the right amount of theology, the right kind of stuff, I know that Jesus is divine, he's God, and that he was born of a virgin, and that the Bible's infallible, I'm good. I get my theology right, it's okay. That God is one, these are all good things. If I get all that stuff right, I should be good. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. All your theology is right. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James asks, is this really what you want your salvation to rest on? That kind of faith without works? You can, but this is the type of faith that 
accomplishes nothing. Let's look at the demons for a minute. This is the second example that James uses. Do the demons have actions or works consistent with the law of Christ? It's a silly question. No, they don't. And yet, they really do. They really do believe in God. They have no doubt that He's real. In fact, so much so that it makes them tremble or shudder at the thought of God. They do have it. They understand. They do believe in that way. They have no problem believing that God is real or that He is one or that He is divine. But their response is not the type of response from a person who holds faith in Christ, that which we found in chapter 2, verse 1. Now we're going to go a step further, though. As we started talking about believe, if demons are actually believing, what is their action? What's this verb that they're doing? We need to understand that. Well, perhaps, what is their object? What do they believe in? What do they trust? How does it change them? Uh, is it possible, I'll ask you this question. I think you should consider this for a minute. Is it possible to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and not be saved? Man, Chris, now you're messing with Paul again. Isn't he the one who says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, Acts 16, 31? Yes, he does say that. Isn't he the one who said, if you confess your mouth uh, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9? Yes, he said that. I want us to really get this. How is it that you could believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and not be saved? How is it that they can seem like they're so against each other? Please don't take James as Luther did. Again, who I love Luther. I'm so thankful for what he did. He is not lesser because of what he is saying. In fact, he helps us understand much clearer the bigger problem. He is so helpful for us. He is showing us that it is possible for us to think that we have faith, but really the only thing that we have is faith in the facts. Faith in that that is true. Faith that, that's, that all these things line up nicely and that in a test I could answer the questions correctly. And I would say, yeah, I believe that. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that there's a God in heaven. I believe in Satan. I believe all these different things are true. Again, the problem here is the demons believe and they shudder. What James is helping us understand is that there is much more to it than this idea of just throwing out the word faith or just believe. He is narrowing this down to the person and work of Jesus Christ. May I say one more thing? He is also pointing us back to Jesus' words, which was the whole law and the prophets are summed up by what? Faith, no, yes, but let's use Jesus' word. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The primary thing is not believing that the facts exist, but rather trusting the one who has put the universe together that you have sinned against and has sent his sons to substitute for your sin. Very different from believing the facts of the gospel, but believing in Jesus and trusting him fully. Friend, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, and this is new for you, you're saying, well, I, I, I believe that it's true. I'm not talking about that. James isn't talking about that. That won't save you. When you answer God someday, you say, I believe that you're God. 
yeah, but you didn't trust me. You didn't love me with your heart, soul, and mind, and you never loved your neighbor as yourself. You weren't characterized as a Christian, a little Christ, one who's given his entire life over to the person and work of Jesus. The demons believe and they shudder. They do not respond by trusting him forever, falling at his feet like a beggar in meekness and need of mercy. They have no desire to love the Lord with their heart, soul, and mind and love their neighbor. The truth is that the demons instead turn, rebel, and fight against God. None of these things are the responses that probably will yield him saving them in the end. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, James could stop at this point, and we'd be like, yeah, we get it. Uh, but instead, he asks in verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He's doing two things. He's both, he's kind of, putting commentary in the last verses that we just read, and he's going to project us into the next couple. Is that what you really want me to do? Do you really want me to point this out? You need more proof that this is true? I just showed you that, number one, this person who, the foolishness of faith that says it's faith, that doesn't have any actions, saying, be warmed and filled, and it doesn't do anything. And then I've shown you, secondly, demonic faith that has no good works. Both of these have an eerie commentary. If you look at verse 17, dead. Verse 20, useless. Guys, we do not want our faith to have been said and be characterized as dead or useless faith. That means there's no life. That means there's nothing but judgment for us. There's no salvation. We are not in Him. And He will say to us, depart, I never knew you. Matthew 7. We'll continue next week seeing James point to these positive examples now of people who did have works that were working along with their faith. And he's going to show that marrying up of understanding faith and works, how they are never separated. But for this time, I want to stop and make three quick applications to us. Number one, show mercy and love to the poor and helpless. Now you're like, Chris, that's like a general thing. Where are you pulling that from? I realize that it's obviously not the main point of our context, or our text, excuse me. But that doesn't make it any less important, the fact that he purposed to use an example in that first example of someone who did not show love to someone who was poor and needy. We just got out of the first half, remember this, guys? Which was all about that you're showing partiality and not loving the world around you. You have not completed the law of Christ, the royal law, fulfilled what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And so I'll remind us again, in me, I'll remind me that we must show love for the poor. Our world is full of poor people, those that are around us, those across the world. Matthew 25, 42 through 43, Jesus points this out. And he says that if we neglect to clothe the naked or don't take care of the poor, or if we are indifferent about the hungry, we have neglected to take care of Jesus himself. I'll say it again, Cornerstone. This world is full of poor people, those that are around us, that need the gospel and they probably need a meal. That's not saying that we have to switch over and we never share the gospel. I'm not saying that. That would be silly because we're preaching the rest of Scripture and none of that says that. I think we're deficient, though, in our love for people as we give to them. And we love those that are not like us, the least of these. Um, I heard of a family who recently just, in our, in our congregation, who just signed up to be volunteers at 
Crisis Pregnancy Center because they're convicted about this very thing. Yes, that's great. I've also heard other families talking about, hey, how can we jump into other programs like Union Mission or what if we just stopped along the side of the road and like actually had a meal with a homeless person? Because like, I always think that they're just bums and they're not real and that they actually go away and drive a Mercedes away and like they can't really be bums. When was the last time you stayed with someone and actually talked to them? How is this cornerstone that we're just going to deflect this message? I would, I would just remind us that our faith must work itself out like Jesus asked us to and the way that he actually did it. Do you spend time with the elderly or the sick? Do you spend time with homeless people? Have you ever considered adoption or foster care? These are not easy things. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you should consider these things as outworkings of what it means to love those that Jesus loved. That's the first thing. And I'll just say, start by doing something. If you don't know what to do, that's okay. Start by doing something and pray and discern and, and do more things that show love for others, generated out of a heart of repentance towards your own sin and love for God as he loved them. So start by doing something. Second thing, do you believe like the demons believe? Do you believe the facts? You understand it, you get it, but you don't trust God. You don't believe that he is the one that can save your soul, and so you give your whole soul over to him. And without any, with anything other strings attached, you give it all to him. Again, I think that we have gone away from what it really means to trust God. This is important. It's an indicator. It shows us what's going on in our heart. Their actions, they show it. John writes in 1 John 2, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his words, in him truly, the love of God is perfected. In other words, the works are unified with faith. They point back to whether you believe the facts or you believe and trust the object, Jesus himself. This is a point of seeing and savoring Jesus for all that he is as the only one that was able to make us alive, to sanctify us, and to bring us home in salvation, ultimate salvation to himself. This is a faith of the, in the one who is better than every other earthly thing around us. This is not demonic faith, but a faith that God is true and that we love him and want him and him alone. Number three. Do not worship the study of God. Worship God. We talked about this at the beginning. We, we get caught up and excited about sounding more spiritual when we say, well, there's three different ways to understand this verse, and let's cut that out. Don't be distracted with all the interesting arguments and the theories and the endless books that have been written on passages. As your pastor who loves you and will answer for your souls, I would recommend that you be distracted and consumed by the Lord Jesus Christ of these passages. Remember what the Word is all about. It is revealing God to us. It is not about getting interested in the email, in the, the letter. It's about the content of the email, the content of the letter, the content of this Word. These papers will go away, but Jesus will never. The paper and, and the words can't save us. Jesus can save us. So don't be distracted by this other stuff and get enamored with the arguments and the, the good stuff and the deep theological thoughts. All this reading is so that we might better know and love our Savior and King Jesus. So I say to us, 
Praise be to God, who is the one who saves us. And we thank Him for His kindness and mercy to us. And I'll say this last thing. I want you to know that the way that elders pray for you members over and over again is that you would have faith and repentance. Because those are gifts of God. We know that. And we are praying that for ourselves. We pray, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And we're praying the same thing for you. We love you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and all that is in it to show us the truth of the gospel. I pray that you would make us doers of the word, not hearers only. I pray that we would not be those that say we have faith, but have no works. God, teach us what it means to know you and love you. And as we enter into this next section, I pray that you give wisdom to us to hear and receive the word with meekness. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.